I don't know whether you are the kind of person who enjoyed school or not. I won't ask for a show of hands. Well, so, some of you, that affects you because you're teachers, that alone is uh, pupils, I don't know. But we, we all recognise the kinds of things that make a great teacher, I think, don't we? Maybe you can remember teachers that really connected with you or inspired you. In our studies in 1 Thessalonians today, we've reached chapter 4 that you and read to us. And this is a chapter of practical, passionate reinforcement. Uh, those three things strike me as qualities of a good teacher. Um, this is where Paul, first of all, becomes very practical about life. He's very good at spelling things out very clearly. I think a lot of Paul's letters work like this. Sometimes Paul, he gives a lot of explanation. And then in the second part of his letters, he shows what difference what he's been saying makes to how his readers live. Um, Paul knows, and I think, I think you know, we know, don't we, that what you believe will shape how you then live. There's a connection between those two things. So he explains and then he applies and he's very practical, clear. But I do love the fact also that Paul is so passionate. He starts chapter four here in the NIV at least with the word finally as if he's wrapping things up and then carries on for another two chapters. It sounds like one of my sermons. Um, he, he, he's kind of got so much to say. It, I mean, it's, it's finally is like a long, almost PS. And he, when you get to the end of chapter five, I'm actually preaching the last one of these as well. It almost sounds like a machine gun going off from verse 16 with all the little kind of boof, 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 boof. Did I forget something? He, we'll, we'll get to that at the end. So still my own thunder now. But you, you get a sense of his, his passion. The truth is, he actually longs to visit them and do this face-to-face, doesn't he? You, you can't be meeting face-to-face. He loves them. He wants to see them. But what he's doing here is trying to pack in all the important headlines and reminders that he wants them to know. So it's practical. There's passion. But the other thing to notice here is how much Paul is reinforcing what he's already taught them. He was only with them in Thessalonica for a short time. But in verse 1, he says, we instructed you. That's what he was doing when he was there. In verse 2, you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of Jesus. At the very end of verse 6. He, t- he says, as we have already told you and warned you. End of verse 11, just as we told you. In other words, all of this stuff that Paul writes here is not new. He's, he's already told them all of this. What, it, what he's writing is, you remember when I told you this, I told you that? He's writing to reinforce everything he's already said. I, I, I think he's reinforcing the very basics. He's not dealing with petty issues here. There are some practical details in some of Paul's letters, but this is Christianity 101. He's reinforcing here the basics for these new baby Christians. 
And it's interesting, isn't it, that Paul didn't just preach the gospel, but he went on to teach new Christians how then to live. Practically, passionately, repetitively, like any great teacher. So this, this chapter is a great chapter, constantly reinforcing these key things. If you've been here, let me remind you, in chapter one, we were thinking about gospel power, its impact. In chapter two, we were asking a question, who can you trust? And we were highlighting Paul's gospel integrity. You remember that? Was that two weeks ago? Last week, we were asking a different question. How do you survive as a Christian believer and make it to the end? And we were thinking about what we called gospel stickability. I don't think that word translates into Farsi very well on our <laughs> translations. Gospel perseverance, uh, gospel stickability. In this chapter, I want to suggest now that Paul is here talking about gospel lifestyle. That's where Paul goes in this chapter now. And if, if you want a question, maybe our question this time would be something along these lines. Who am I? And what am I here for? What is my life meant to be? This, this is a massive question, isn't it? We've only got 30 minutes. I don't want to get all philosophical, but this is a question of identity and meaning and purpose. Isn't it true that our society is confused about all those things at this point? Who are we? What are we for? What is life about? Well, Paul here is reminding them who they are, and he's practically, passionately reinforcing how they should now live individually as new believers and corporately. What he's doing here is shaping the identity of a community of believers here. He isn't saying everything that could be said. Maybe he's saving that for when he visits them. But what he does say must clearly be very high priorities. You know, he's not dealing with small stuff here. So I want to break this up in, into three simple sections. So let, let me give you them up front. Um, here's where we're going to go. Gospel lifestyle, in a sense, is, is about pleasing God. It, it has something to do with reflecting God. And it also has something to do with relying on God. And I think all of those things are here. I want to spend a smaller time on the first part and the last part because this is a little bit like a sandwich. And we're going to spend more time on the bit in the middle. I, I don't want to say the meat because some of you will be vegetarians. Um, whatever you like in your sandwiches, the filling, we'll, we'll spend a little bit of time on the slices and then we'll spend the bulk of our time in the middle dwelling on the filling. I want you, I, I've put this up then at the beginning though, because I want you to see that although what Paul communicates here is, is a tremendously high calling, there are tremendously big resources for us to live that way. We, we can please God when we rely on him for his help in doing that. So the slices connect. <laughs> this is a high calling, but we have a great God 
who helps us and strengthens us, encourages and inspires us to live in these ways. Putting it like this also reminds me that God is a trinity, Father, Son and Spirit. And there's something in saying it like this. You could say that as Christian believers, we are called to please our Father in heaven by being like his Son, Jesus, with the help and power of his Spirit at work in our hearts. So this is actually a Trinitarian formula in a way that kind of emerges from this chapter. Pleasing God by reflecting him with his help, relying on him. Okay, so that's where we're going to go. So number one, gospel lifestyle we're suggesting from this passage is about pleasing God. That's because that's what Paul says in verse one. Finally, brothers, finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. I think that's very striking. Paul sums up his whole teaching with this idea. He isn't just giving them rules to keep. He isn't just giving them a list of things. Neither is he trying to limit them and restrict them. Neither is he trying to burden them with some kind of misery. His his aim is to teach them to live in a way that makes God smile. That's his motive in ministry. He wants them to blossom and flourish and discover life as God intended it to be. Why do we make that so boring? (laughs) I wonder whether this is where we start when we think of our lives as believers. And I think there's at least a couple of things that might fight against us and try and wrestle with us in this. The first is, of course, and I I say this conscious, uh, you know, of sensitivity to it. The first is that some of us have had parents or teachers who have been impossible to please. If that's true, for any of us, we'll surely find it difficult to conceive of a God who smiles. Because we already feel that somehow our lives are a disappointment. How, how do we put that back together? But there's another reason, a spiritual or theological reason. And we're, we're trying to be Bible-believing Christians and we, we know this. None of us can ever be right with God by relying on our own goodness. We know that the Bible teaches this. The Bible teaches that every one of us falls short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. And that we can only be reconciled to him because Jesus died in our place, bearing our sins. We're not saved by what we do, but by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. As we trust him, God clothes us with the righteousness of Jesus. And covers all of our faults and unworthiness. This is true and it's really important to understand. But what we're talking about in this case is what we might call forensic righteousness. The picture here is of us in a courtroom before God as our judge. 
in a legal sense. And in this, we can never plead in that court our own good behaviour. We have to rely totally on the grace and kindness that God has shown to us in sending Jesus to be a saviour. All of that's true. But, although God is the perfect judge, is he not also a kind father? Friends, we do need in our lives a category somehow for the kind of imperfect but sincere obedience that pleases him. We surely know this as parents when our young children come home from nursery, proud to show us the pictures they've painted of us. I I was going to show you one. We look like aliens. If you assessed those pieces of nursery artwork forensically, they wouldn't win any prizes. They're precious not because they're perfect, but because they did their best. Is that not true? Let's imagine I asked one of my kids, I've done this millions of times, to tidy their room. I kind of gave up towards the end. But no, tidy their room and make their bed. I, I wouldn't then go in there 10 minutes later with a clipboard as if I was a hotel inspector. Can you imagine the scene? Examining the creases and the folds, making sure the angle of the duvet on the bed is kind of right, making sure the pillows are exactly at 90 degrees and kind of giving them a score. I'm I'm sorry, but that was a three out of 10. You need to do better next time. If we know how to be pleased with the imperfect but sincere obedience of our own kids, Do we think less of God as our Father? We're not saved by what we do, but let's not fall into the trap of thinking that God somehow is like a critical Father in the sky with a clipboard marking us down every time we make a mistake. There's a category for imperfect but sincere obedience that pleases him. Let let me ask you a pointed question this afternoon. Do you believe that you can actually please God? Or do you see God as having these perfectionist tendencies and bringing a clipboard to your relationship? Do you see him as a cheerful wise, warm parent who appreciates the sincere and genuine, though imperfect, efforts of a child who's doing their best. Paul says, finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. As in fact, you are living. That's Paul's starting point with them. 
The other aspect to this, of course, is that whoever we are, we're trying to live to please someone. And perhaps the opposite of this is living to please ourselves. <laughs> so it's worth just marking that as well, isn't it, before we go on. Who am I and what am I for? Actually, I'm not designed to be selfish and simply please myself. I have a much higher, nobler, expansive calling than that. I love the fact with these new believers that Paul starts there, let me show you how to live in a way that isn't just pleasing you, but pleasing him. And friends, verse 2 is really crucial as well. Paul isn't just giving them his own opinions here, but he is actually a mouthpiece for the teaching of Jesus. You know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And Jesus is the one human who did perfectly and forensically please his father. Paul's commands and instructions here are not just his opinions. They come directly from the one who made the father smile more than anybody else. So there's not just an authority here, but there's a warmth and, and, a, and a knowledge that comes from Jesus through Paul to these dear new Christians. Gospel lifestyle is about pleasing God. Secondly, gospel lifestyle is about reflecting God. This second heading is very simple. Well, they all are, but let, let me explain what I mean by reflecting God. The Bible teaches us that we are all created as human beings in God's image. And that, that, by the way, is what gives every single human being their value and dignity inherently. But it also, being created in the image of God, says something about why, who we are and what, what we're for. If we're created in the image of God, our primary calling is to reflect something of the goodness and glory of God. This is what our lives are designed for, to reflect him. Where can we see that idea in this passage then? So I'm not, I'm not just making this up. <laughs> um, perhaps the word that sums up God's good desires for each of his children in this is the word holy. Which sounds like a religious word and maybe we view that word with all kinds of negative connotations. But one of the key ideas behind the idea or the word holiness is the idea of being set apart for a special use. It, the word holy appears in this uh, passage a couple of times. But it's also implied in, the, in verse 3 when Paul says it's God's will that you should be sanctified. The word sanctified means set apart, which is what being holy is. Holiness is about being different. It, it isn't just the absence of moral defect. It's about being singled out for a special purpose. Very occasionally, very occasionally, I enjoy eating a nice steak. Not all the time. But at one time, my family know this, and they bought me for, was it for Christmas? I should know that, shouldn't I? They bought me some special steak knives as a gift. 
You, get, you sometimes get them in restaurants, don't you? They take away your ordinary knife and bring you a special steak knife. Well, they bought me some. And they live in a special box. And they only come out for special occasions. They're set apart. They're not everyday ordinary knives. We'll be tired if everyone thinks they can butter their toast with one of my steak knives. They're, they're set apart as special knives. They're there to perform a particular task. The Bible reveals God to be utterly set apart. The Lord's Prayer says this actually, you know the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. That means may your name be in a category all of its own. It's right there in the Lord's Prayer. God is other. He is completely and utterly different. There's no one else like him. He is in a unique category all by himself. But this holy God calls his people to be holy. He also sets them apart to be different. And part of that is that they're called to reflect something of his goodness and glory and holiness. This idea runs through the whole Bible. And uh, it's here, very prominent in this letter. God chose these believers in Thessalonica. He called them to share in his glory and kingdom. They're not now what they used to be. Everything is different for them now. God has called them to a better story, to a new identity. The moment they trusted in Jesus, they were made right with God. They were brought into God's family. But this sanctification or setting apart is a process whereby they are increasingly becoming what God designed them to be. Uh, I'm going to still my thunder again. Just look at the end of chapter 5 and verse 23. An amazing verse. Paul gets the end of this letter and says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. <laughs> what a verse that is. Um, the, the, this sanctification is something that's increasing and growing may God himself set you apart may he grow your holiness so a gospel lifestyle is about pleasing God but when we start to flesh it out this means reflecting something of what God himself is like in our lives the call to holiness is not the call to a drab grey miserable life this is a call to usefulness and beauty and faithfulness this is a call to human flourishing and freedom so we we haven't got time to dip into all of this in detail but i think paul breaks this down into four areas so let me summarize them here up front and we'll look at each of them the verses are here Four things that put, this is how they are to reflect God in this world. Sexual purity, loving generosity, quiet responsibility and distinctive confidence. And the verses are there on the screen. Now, although I've given you four themes there, you could almost sum up all of them under the headings of sex, money and power. My last one actually relates more to death 
So, so actually you've got sex, money, power and death. And if they are not four themes that arguably make the world go round, I, I, I don't know what are. The, our papers are full of these themes. So Paul here is not aiming low <laughs> and he's not being petty. He, he's dealing with big topics here. These are all areas where all of us have uh, issues. I think they're all areas in which we're called as believers to be different by pleasing God and reflecting his goodness to a world that rejects him. American pastor John Piper published a book in 2016 called Living in the Light, which basically, I don't know if anyone's read it, but he basically explores the themes of money, sex and power. And the premise in the book is that often people assume that Christians think that money, sex and power are all bad. And Piper uses the analogy analogy of, of the solar system to show that God actually created all three of these things to be good. Piper's premise is that money, sex and power are not the sun at the centre of this solar system. They're designed to be planets. The true blazing centre can only ever be God himself. And every other good thing that God has made only works correctly when it orbits around him as he intended. So these things are not bad, but they're only good when they are in their rightful place. The problem comes when we try to replace God with something else. And so we put sex, money, or power, or all three, and we try to make them the sun and revolve our lives around them. And that's when things break. So Paul here is writing to address sex, money, and power, and, and a little bit death, so that this new community would be defined and marked by purity, love, humility, and hope. So we, let's be very quick. Number one, sexual purity. I, I, I wonder whether Paul begins with sexual sins because they were the most common. Many writers have described the first century as one of unbridled self-gratification, where there was very little to no sexual restraint. I, I, I wish we had more time. We could do a whole talk on this, but... This was a time in which men could pretty much do what they liked. Women couldn't, but women were extremely vulnerable. Is is that not right on topic in the culture that we live in? Um, Even in the Gospels, Jesus talked about divorce. And and even the Jews, who had much higher standards than the rest of society, allowed for men to divorce their wives, but not the other way around. And when Jesus kind of forbade that, the disciples were shocked <laughs> and may, maybe they were steeped in kind of male privilege and they, they couldn't understand how Jesus could like stop this. <laughs> so culture in the face, I, I, I wonder whether we're more like the first century now than, than, than maybe we've ever been. But anyway, if we think that these words here would be a hard sell in our own culture, don't, don't, don't be thinking that it was an easy sell to write this in the first century. Arguably, it was worse. I I don't think this would have sounded any different to Paul's readers than it sounds to us. I think the reason Paul speaks so frankly and bluntly here is because he knows this is a massive challenge for these new Christians in an immoral culture. 
And yet this teaching was attractive. And the number of believers grew rapidly. Paul's teaching is bold and clear. Avoid sexual immorality. Don't give free rein to out-of-control appetites because you will hate yourself and damage other people. Paul had already warned them that God will punish people for misusing the good gift of sex. And the worst part about that is that, and, and this is maybe sometimes where we have issues, the worst part is not being found out or facing an angry spouse, or even some kind of public shame. The, the worst part is facing God, isn't it? Who is good and holy and rightly angry when we vandalise his creation. I wonder whether deep down we do know the truth of verse 7. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. I, I wonder whether deep down in all of our hearts we know the truth of that. The bottom line for Paul in verse 8 is that God knows what is best for his creation. And in fact, when we turn our backs on his loving care, guidance and instruction, we're essentially rejecting him. So Paul's words here are serious and weighty and blunt. This is kind of part of his Christianity 101. But I do want to say this, that the gospel he preaches and this passage actually that he writes, aren't they filled with positive themes too? Of God forgiving sins, changing lives and calling all of us to a better story than the one we've lived. Paul wants this community to be marked out as radically different. He knows what their culture is like. He understands the pressure that they're under. But he's calling them to lives that resist being squeezed into what society normalises. Their task as a community is to reflect God and his goodness, not conform to what the culture around them is saying. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, set apart, holy, and avoid sexual immorality. This raises all kinds of questions, so we, we can talk afterwards. Um, let, let's uh, skip through the, other, the others. Number two, loving generosity. In verses 9 and 10, Paul urges them, Again, to love one another, as in fact they are doing. The point here is, even though they would otherwise have had very little in common prior to their conversion to Christ, their communal identity is now that of a family. So we have people here who are socially from different classes, ethnically from different races. They would have had nothing in common otherwise, and yet Paul talks about brotherly love. Love each other as if you were siblings. Part of the same family with the same father, brothers and sisters. 
and this even extends to believers outside of their own immediate circle. We talked earlier about the FIC and other churches across our country. Verse 10, Paul says, In fact, you do love all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia. So they're not just inward looking. And I think there's a financial aspect to this. Sometimes these guys were struggling. We know in the New Testament there was famine and all kinds of things that went on. These guys looked after each other. They shared what they had to help one another. They weren't selfish. They didn't take advantage of each other. They were open and transparent and generous. I think this section about love is like a little hinge because love is an expression in one way of sexual purity in the previous section, but it's also an expression of the responsibilities Paul ages in the next section. So thirdly, quiet responsibility. There's a, there's a lot going on in these verses. This is verse um, 11 and 12. First of all, Paul basically says, mind your own business. <laughs> Paul, you, you didn't know that was in the Bible, did you? Paul, Paul writes and says, mind your own business, guys. Is, is there not something in our human nature that loves to pry into what other people are doing? <laughs> or what other people have, even? We love to know details too, don't we? So we can make comparisons. Not always in a nice way. Paul is encouraging them not to be busybodies or gossips. Stop interfering in things that don't concern you. Don't be always thinking the worst of other people. Don't be jealous if some people have more than you. And don't look down on people who might have less than you. Your job is to knuckle down and work on your own attitudes. Stop. Mind your own business. It's like... But there's, there's more than that going on here. If, if you find yourself part of a community where that's full of love and care and particularly one that provides support for each other, even financially sometimes, it could be pretty easy to kick back and start to take that for granted, couldn't it? Begin to rely on the kindness of others. So Paul, Paul's very clear here. He, he's got in mind here a community which genuinely cares for its vulnerable and needy members, but it's also one in which... There's no place for freeloading. There's no place for abusing and exploiting that. It isn't loving your brother or sister to let them to work hard and do something that you could easily do for yourself, is it? There's no love in that. It comes out more in Paul's second letter that there were, there were people in this community who'd got into the habit of freeloading on the generosity and work of other people Paul effectively says that that isn't love, that's laziness. So when Paul says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, mind your own business, and to work with your hands just as we told you, he's encouraging them to take responsibility. Paul's concern in verse 12 is that this community would earn the respect of outsiders and not be a laughingstock because they were all useless. How would anyone listen to the gospel they preached if they couldn't even look after themselves? 
And I, I love Paul's words here because they are so humble. He isn't calling people here to be some kind of superstar. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work hard, essentially. Paul calls them to everyday, ordinary, humble, common sense, long-term diligence. Sometimes we want it quick. Sometimes we want results now. Quiet responsibility. It's a beautiful vision of, of how humans can flourish. But uh, lastly, very quickly, distinctive confidence. We're going we're gonna to talk about this more next week in chapter 5. But I th just briefly, I think the thing here is that these believers in Thessalonica had experienced the grief and loss of members of their community dying. And they knew already that Jesus would return one day. But fellow Christians had already died and they couldn't grasp the details of what that meant. And so in this next section, Paul seeks to encourage them. But the key thought, I think, is in verse 13. We do not want you to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Can you see there the idea again of being different? It's not wrong to grieve, but we don't want you to grieve like most people grieve. You're different now. Other people grieve with no hope. The world actually has no answer, does it, in the face of death? But although the grief and separation and loss is real, the hope of Christian believers is found in the fact that Jesus died and rose again. Verse 14 is almost like a little creed. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep or died in him in the face of human suffering that is real you have a distinctive quiet confident hope that takes away despair I, I wonder actually if this too is part of winning the respect of outsiders actually Paul, Paul is saying to them even in the face of death you guys have a comfort and a confidence that is attractive to others who don't have it. So what, what a powerful chapter this is. Here, here then is something of a gospel lifestyle. Immensely practical. And it works in forming a community that both pleases God and reflects his goodness in the world. And it's different to the world. In its purity, in its generosity, in its responsibility... And in its hope, it is healthy and strong and robust. But as I, as I said at the beginning, there is yet one more thing. Thirdly, gospel lifestyle is about relying on God. This is also a miracle, isn't it? The amazing thing about all of this is that Paul isn't just giving them a list of rules. 
the encouragements and not just a rigorous schedule of things to conform to. That for Paul, these things are the natural outworking of the Spirit of God being at work in their hearts. It isn't outside in, it's inside out. In this passage, Paul assumes this is the case, and then he also says it explicitly. The assumption is in verse 9, where Paul says, About brotherly love, we don't need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. What Paul's saying there is, I can see with my own eyes that you love one another. What that means is that God has already been at work in your heart. You see the assumption he's making? They've got to do it, but the the reason they're doing it is because God is helping them and inspiring them in their hearts to do it. And the explicit mention comes at the end of verse 8, where Paul talks about the God who gives you his Holy Spirit. So the encouraging thing here is that none of this is a test to pass in order to get in. This isn't something to live up to, to gain access. The reality is that they've been forgiven and brought into God's family and the Spirit of God is their strength and their helper. The point is that they are new people now. They're different and they have new resources that they didn't have before to help them live up to this high calling. So a gospel lifestyle is not a DIY project. What God commands his people to do and to be, he provides all the strength and help to get there. The aim is high, but the resources are huge. And in the end, the glory is all his. When I was at university, I'll close with this, I had a friend whose dad did some kind of ministry. He was like some kind of travelling, international speaker. And his dad had a little catchphrase, I've never forgotten this from being a student. His dad's phrase was, I can't, but he can. That was his phrase. I remember this friend sharing that with me about his dad. His his dad was a lovely bloke who I met. We should never, as Christian believers, ever say, I can't. Better to say, I can't do it on my own. But with God's help, by his grace and love and the power of his spirit at work in my heart, I can. I can't, but he can gospel lifestyle is about pleasing God by reflecting God and we can only do that by relying on God. Amen.